Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning, friends. It is good to see you. It is, as always, a pleasure to have the opportunity to open up the Word and share some thoughts. And I want to get to know you a little bit this morning. And I have a theory that you could learn a lot about a person by discovering how they respond when the check engine light comes on. I think some of you feel me. So it seems to me there's like two categories of people. You know, there's the immediate responders. When that light comes on your dash, like you're going you're gonna to go. Like you're going to take it to the shop right away or you're going to call your mechanic or you're going to pop your hood. Aunt's category. Good job, responsible citizens. There are a few of you in the room. On the other hand, there's the rest of humanity. I'll go ahead and say the rest of us who are in the other category. When that light comes on, we see it. It's there. And we think, oh, I mean, you know, I bet you it's probably, it's fine like that. Sometimes those lights just come on. All of a sudden we're like experts, you know, in auto mechanics. Sometimes those lights just come on. And then it's a couple days, it'll be gone. It's probably no big deal. Everything's fine, you know. How many fit in that category? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Most of us. Um, so I, I would suggest that this image, this idea of the check engine light will serve as a beneficial metaphor for um, engaging the text, uh, how this text should function in our lives today. Like, how do you respond? I guess here's the question. How do you respond to an unexpected warning? To an unanticipated warning? What do you do? We're talking about today uh, Judas Iscariot and his betrayal of Jesus. Now, very rarely do you say that and then somebody thinks like, oh, cool, this is going to be fun, (laughs) you know? Um, That's just not typically the response to, to this event. And and I thought, is there some way to like soften the, the blow, like, you know, dull the force of this? And there's not really, nor said I think there should be. Like, th- we're just going to jump in and we're going we're to just pay attention to what happened. We're going to look at, actually, I've never done this before. You can turn your Bibles to Matthew 26 if you want to. Uh, I've never done this before. I've never really had the opportunity in this way. We, we, we've been, um, you know, we've been in this series, The Gospel, for some time now. And we've been walking through the life of Jesus chronologically. And we're actually nearing the end, which is crazy. I'm going to miss this thing. And, you know, we're taking the four reports of Jesus' life. The Gospels is what we call them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're kind of laying them alongside one another and just studying that event by event. And it means that sometimes, sometimes something is just holding one or or maybe two or three or four. This event is told in all four gospels. Now we're going to do something, like I said, I've never done. We're going to read through three of them. We're going to read Matthew, Luke, and John. Mark's is very similar to Matthew's and we'll pull some of Mark's unique details in later. I just want us to take it in though, to just really kind of feel what's happening. When I read these, these texts, I, you know, you could check out. It totally could be an easy thing to do because it's the same story, right? But I want you as I read through to try to picture the details of what's actually happening uh, on this Thursday night in the final week of Jesus' life. It may be beneficial for us to to get a little bit of a running start by remembering some things that have happened in the last week or so. It is so far as we can tell, late Thursday night. Sometimes it's hard to tell the details, but that's our best educated guess. Thursday night is when the event takes place that we're looking at. Last Saturday, so the day before the final week of Jesus' life, Jesus is at a home in Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. He just gets to Jerusalem, checks it out, goes to this home. And this woman, Mary, comes up to him. You probably heard, maybe you've heard this story before. And she breaks this jar of expensive perfume and she washes his feet with it as an act of devotion. And he, he takes this as, as a wonderful act of love and affection and adoration. But there are some people who objected to it. Some of the disciples didn't like it very much. Judas Iscariot particularly had a problem with this. He didn't like this. 
He didn't think this was cool. And after this takes place, we actually discover that that night he leaves and he goes to the Jewish leaders and he says, I will give you Jesus. I know you want him. You pay me and I'll hand you him. And they give him 30 pieces of silver and he waits for an opportune time. You fast forward a couple of days, Monday happens, Tuesday happens, and then on Wednesday, Jesus is sharing a meal with his disciples. The Last Supper is what we call it. It's a Passover meal that celebrates the independence of God's people and looks forward to the coming of the Messiah, and Jesus is explaining about how it's actually pointing forward to him, and there's a bunch of stuff going on, kind of chaotic in terms of all the details, but there's this one detail, though, that we discover in the Gospels where Jesus actually says to Judas, I know what you're about to do. You're not pulling anything over my eyes. Like, I I know the decision that you've made, and I know what you're planning on doing. And it's kind of weird. It seems like he maybe says it in such a way that nobody else can hear what's going on, which means Judas is really close to Jesus. But Jesus kind of whispers to him, and then Judas takes off, and everybody wonders what's going on. Well, you fast forward now. That was Wednesday. Wednesday, of course, becomes Thursday. Jesus does some teaching, does a lot of praying on Thursday for us, for his disciples, for the, for the world. And then he goes away to this place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Drake did a great job of unpacking this, this, this pregnant, dramatic scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is praying alone to the Father saying, can we find another way? And the Father says, no. And so multiple times Jesus says, okay, not my will, but yours be done. I will drink the cup that you have for me. Let, let's go. And we're gonna pick things up at the very end of that scene because that scene uh, is interrupted by this arrest. So let's start in Matthew chapter 26 uh, in verse 45, if you're following along up through 56. Here's what happens. Then he, that's Jesus, returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who live by the sword, all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Luke's version of the story comes in Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53. He's a bit briefer. While Jesus was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. 
But this is your hour when darkness reigns. John tells his version of the story in John chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. This, this event, it, it confuses me. And not just because of the like way in which the details all fit together. That part is, is, is kind of weird at first, but it's not that hard to see how you can take these four accounts and recognize that they're all grabbing different parts of the action. Actually, <clears throat> this week I encourage you, get on YouTube and look up some different videos of um, reconstructions of Judas betraying Jesus. Sometimes those things are cheesy, so you kind of got to get over some of that. But there's some decent ones, actually, of, of this scene that really kind of help you picture what, what took place. But it's sti still, like, I, I don't know. That, that's, my, that's, my, that's, my, that's my response to this story. I don't know. And it bothers me too, personally, because one of my favorite things to do for people is to answer their questions about the Bible. Like, it's a way that I think I serve the church and, and you know, it's kind of part of how God helps me bless other people. And I absolutely, the joy of seeing the light bulb come on. When somebody engages scripture and they're reading enough to learn some stuff, but then to be confused and then they come, maybe you've been there before and they ask a question and you can answer their question in a way that kind of, kind of satisfies their curiosity a little bit, but pushes them to study further. I absolutely love that. Like it's one of my favorite things to do. And yet, if you ask me any substantial question about the Judas story, the answer is, I don't know. How much of this was his choice and how much of it was Satan working through him? I don't know. Like if, if Judas hadn't done what he did, would somebody else have had to step in and do it in order to fulfill the scriptural prophecy? I don't know. Well, in the end, did Judas repent? I don't know. We know he felt bad. We know that after this all went down, he realized he had done a wrong thing and he threw the money back at the people who gave it to him and he went out and he hung himself. We know he felt bad, but remorse is not the same as repentance. So like, will, will he be in heaven? I don't know. Was he sincere at first when he started following Jesus and then he kind of turned evil at some point? Or was he always corrupt? I don't know. I heard a new one from my daughter Claire a couple weeks ago when we were watching some of these videos. After watching it, she said, why didn't they let Jesus go after he put the man's ear back on? <laughs> Great question, babe. And add it to the list because I don't know. But then there's the big question, though, the one that most curious folks will ask if you kind of look at this story long enough. Why? Why did he do this? 
Surely this one can be explained. Why did Judas betray Jesus? I'll tell you my theory on it. I can be pretty brief. I don't know. I tried to watch this video of some experts. It's about a 10-minute video of some experts explaining why Judas did what he did. I made it like 40 seconds in and I had to turn it off. It was so annoying. Y'all don't know either. You're just pretending to. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know that we're supposed to. Maybe why is, is not the right question. It's sort of, like, uh, sort of like the Cain and Abel story. You know that story early on in the Bible of the two brothers, Cain and Abel, and both of them brought their offerings to God and, and God preferred Abel's offering to Cain's and so Cain was jealous and so then Cain went and killed Abel and it's a weird story and you read the story and you think like, why did God prefer Abel's offering to Cain's? I'm not sure, but why do you need to know? Isn't it better to ask the question, how do I feel when it kind of feels like God is favoring somebody else more than he's favoring me? That's probably the right question with that story. You see my point? Like there's nothing wrong with explanation per se. I do think that scripture is meant to be understood, but sometimes God doesn't make the details super clear because sometimes knowledge is not the best thing for us. Sometimes knowing the answer to our questions actually protects us from having to ask harder questions. In this kind of case, when we're looking at somebody who did something wrong, like it's kind of, it's easier. It can, it can like knowledge, understanding and knowing what's going on can help us feel better about ourselves because it confirms what we hope is true, that whatever this bad person did, I would never do. Why do they do that? Well, because X. Well, X doesn't apply to me, so I guess I wouldn't do that. Well, you know, politicians, they take advantage of the weak. Why? Because they're corrupt, but I'm not corrupt, so I wouldn't do that. Or sweet Drake Holderman, you know, he makes up this story about losing his passport. But I don't travel internationally, so I would never do that. You know, that kind of thing. We'll come back to Drake in a second. For now, joking aside, y'all know we do this. I would never. Maybe that's true. Maybe. Judas was the worst, though. I mean, he had to be, right? We have all sorts of ways of measuring the badness of the bad things that people do. And most of them can be helpful if you just kind of let them all work together and don't ask too much of any one theory. You know, it's like, to keep it really simple, there's good guys and there's bad guys and there's betrayers. Dante put betrayers, you know, at the middle of the circles of hell. Even pirates know that this thing is jacked up. Snitches get stitches, right? Like you just, you don't do this. Like who does this? Who sells out somebody who trusts you? What? We could take a different approach, a, a little bit more of an analytical one. We could say that the evil of an action takes into consideration what you're doing it, what you're doing, and the person you're doing it to. I think that probably is true. Let's start with a light example. Again, a sweet Drake Holderman. We'll keep picking on him because it's good for him. So, you know, if you weren't here last week, he tells this story about how he lost his passport in Israel, caused some chaos on the trip. He shares this detail that I somehow took the passport as a joke, a detail that in fact is not the case. I was thinking back through my, you know, working back through the mental files and doing some research and going into my lowest lane mode. And I remember actually a distinct quote that I'll give you that will reveal to you the true version of the story. I remember we were talking out there. Actually, I did find the passport in his backpack and I pulled it out of his backpack and he said, and I quote, oh yeah, I put it in that secret pocket in my backpack because it's so hidden. I didn't actually know it was there before then, but then I forgot. That's the real version of the story, Right. But here's the thing, I bring it up to, to say he made a good call last week because if he wants to play with this story a little bit, he's got a few options, right? Like he can act like his wife took the passport, but that's not a good idea because he's got to go home to Andrea, you know what I'm saying? 
He can act like Mark took the passport, but Mark has the power to fire him, so that's not a good idea. So in the end, he made the least bad call, like blame it on me. That's a pretty good way of looking at it. Because the evil of an action, of course, is what you do and who you do it to. Now, joking aside, let's get serious. It's why adultery is worse than just sleeping around in some ways. It's why, um, it's why assault and battery of a peer is never going to measure up to abuse of an innocent child. It's why, like, like, like murder's always wrong, right? But imagine if, imagine if somebody found the cure for cancer. So some scientist or doctor like figures it out and they finally comes together in their mind and they know that this is the formula and it's in their head and they're about to go share it and the folks are gonna write it down and disperse this information. But along the way to sharing this information that right now is only in this person's head, somebody decides to take that doctor, that scientist's life. Like that killer is going to be public enemy number one. You didn't just kill somebody. You killed the person who was about to bring the cure to a lot of people who are trying to find a way to escape death. Like, how could you do such a thing? Now, we're not trying to be super technical about this. We just really want to think this through long enough. We just want to sit in the uncomfortable nightmare arrest long enough to smell the stench of what Judas did. One man in history has been God incarnate, sent to rescue the rest of us from sin and redeem all things. One man. And Judas sold out that one man for the price of a slave. What an idiot, man. What a fool. Judas was a fool. A fool is someone who pushes God to the side of his mind and therefore becomes stupid and eventually evil. That's a fool. A fool is someone who does what is convenient without regard for the long-term consequences. A fool is someone who understands what Jesus wants but decides they know a better way. That's Judas. Man, I'm glad I'm not like him, aren't you? And yet, that's not the way the story ends. I don't even mean that figuratively. I'm not even talking about like later on in the Gospels. I'm talking about this event. You saw how Matthew ended it. Mark ends it similarly. Toward the end of this account, and Mark will give his, his version of the story a little press too. He says in Mark chapter 14, verse 50, then everyone deserted him and fled. Maybe no one on this night can claim the moral high ground. And then, and then, where everybody stops, Mark adds one more detail. It's the second strangest detail in the whole story next to Jesus putting the man's ear back on. It's in Mark chapter 14, verses 51 and 52. Right after what I just said, then everyone deserted him and fled. It says, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. What the, like, why, why'd you put that in there? And I'll tell you the reason why Mark put that in there. The most likely explanation is that Mark is the young man. Biographers would do this in the ancient world. They would write themselves into the story in a subtle way. Usually wouldn't name themselves. Like usually it's positive. You know, in John's gospel, he describes himself not as John, but as the, the disciple that Jesus loved. He's defined by the love of Jesus. Mark goes a different route and he writes himself into the story at his worst, most embarrassing moment. I'm gonna write a manual about following Jesus and I'm gonna be in there at the point when I ran naked in shame because I was afraid I think that Mark fully understand how we should respond to this story. Maybe it wasn't me who betrayed Jesus, but it could have been. I sometimes push God to the side of my mind and therefore become stupid and eventually evil. 
I sometimes do the convenient thing without regard for the long-term consequence. I sometimes have a pretty good sense of what Jesus wants from me, and yet I decide I know a better way. Maybe the line between good and evil really does run through the heart of each one of us, and maybe the line between Judas and you and me is a little bit more perforated than we'd like it to be. Sometimes the only way up is down. There is no deep cleansing without an honest assessment of the filth within. The way forward is never to pretend that we're better than we are, and it is never to assume that I'm so good I don't need a reminder of how bad I could become if I were not careful. It is never to assume that I'm beyond need of a warning. I'm not. You're not either. And that, I think, is what the Judah story is. It's a warning. I want to pull out from you some different angles, some different ways in which I think we're warned by this story. We'll be fairly brief, but I want to help you think through some of these things. First of all, warning number one, don't think that anyone could stop Jesus. Judas, he he tried to stop Jesus. Some people doubt this. Some people have come up with, there's a popular theory that Judas didn't really want Jesus to to fail. Like he just thought Jesus needed a little little bump, right? Like start the revolution, man. And so he set up this confrontation so that Jesus would go for it. No, like I get it, but you want an explanation. But no, there's like no indication in the text that that's what's going on. No, Judas wanted Jesus to lose. He wanted him stopped and it didn't work. It never works. Did you hear what Jesus said to the disciples that Matthew reports to us? Let me ask you a question. How many angels do you think it would take to defeat, I don't know, a couple hundred human soldiers? I don't know, maybe a couple. I'm going to go with one. If it's like one angel on a few hundred human soldiers, I'm going to go with the angel. Like that's where my money is going to be. I don't know if you're supposed to bet on angels, but if you could, I would, right? But he doesn't say like, I could call on an angel. I was named after the archangel Michael. I think that's pretty cool. I could call on Michael. He doesn't say that. I could call on Gabriel. He doesn't say that. He said, do you not think that I could call on my father and he will put at my disposal over 12 legions of angels? Yeah, I mean, how many soldiers are in a legion? Like give or take about 5,000. And he said, I could call, I have over 12 legions. You say over 12 when you mean 13 or as many as you need. I kind of think he means as many as I need, but let's just go with a conservative estimate. We're talking about more than 60,000 angels who are ready to roll. Jesus is fine. He is okay. He is not begging for our concern. He's not tripping out about the things that are going on then or now. And for most of us, this is kind of an encouragement. For most of us in the room, like this is an encouraging idea. That, you know, like if you live in a world where people are trying to stop Jesus, the one thing you don't need to do is panic because I guarantee you Jesus isn't panicked. He's okay. But there also is a real sense in which we need to be careful to hear this as a potential warning. I don't know you. I don't know the, the deep recesses of your heart. Like, I don't know who's in the room, but if there's anybody here, if there's anybody who's hearing that, that thinks maybe you can stop Jesus, that's trying to work against him to shut down his thing. Look, I don't think this is something, like Jesus is not throwing his chest out saying, bring it on. It's not that brash or immature. It's just a recognition that Jesus' mission is one of deep love that's available to all. But if you resist it, if you push back against him, you're gonna find yourself on the wrong side of that. Not only will you lose out on the benefits that he brings to those who receive him in faith, but he will not lose. He won't. Don't think that anyone can stop Jesus. The second warning that comes out of this text is don't mistake proximity for discipleship. This one hits a little bit closer to home for me, and it probably should for you. You know, Judas, he's only mentioned about 30 times in the Bible, and um, pretty much every time he's talked about, 
It's, he's, there's a reference to the betrayal. It's like even his, his introductions in the early part of the gospel, Judas, the one who would betray Jesus. And he's the one who would betray Jesus until he is the one who betrayed Jesus, like almost all the way through. But at the same time, while the, while the, while the dark shadow of his eventual betrayal cast a pretty long glance over everything, he also, you heard it in the text twice, he also was, quote, one of the 12. Was he a legitimate disciple? Again, I don't know, but he was there. He was there when Jesus turned water into wine, really good wine. He was there when Jesus calmed the storm and they all thought they were going to die. He was there when Jesus fed 5,000 plus people with five loaves and two fish. He was there when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law and healed the woman who had a bleeding issue and raised this man's daughter back from the dead. He was there when Lazarus walked out of the tomb. He saw all of it and yet he still became the one who betrayed Jesus. How? I don't know. But we can know something, and what we can know will make the hair on your arms straighten up stiff if you really grasp its scary significance. Because what we can know and what we must learn from Judas is that proximity does not equal discipleship. You can be close. You can be right up next to it. You can be present. You can be here on a regular basis. And that is not the same thing as being a disciple of Jesus. Disciple just means learner. It's a person who's with Jesus, learning to be like him. You can be around Jesus for a long time and not be with him, learning to do life as he would have you do it. Don't mistake proximity for discipleship. The third warning is don't let disappointment fester. I choose the word fester on purpose Mostly because I think it's one of the grossest words in the English language. You ever say fester? Say fester, come on. It's like kind of fun to say because you think of Uncle Fester, but it's gross if you think about it. Like I looked this up in the dictionary. I'm gonna share the definition of fester with you. There's three different types of, of use. When it's used of a wound or a sore, to fester means to become septic or to undergo the formation of pus. That's nasty. When it's used of a food or garbage, it means to become rotten and offensive to the senses. <laughs> That's descriptive. When it's used of a negative feeling or a problem, it means to become worse or more intense, especially through long-term neglect or indifference. Here's my point. Betrayal doesn't come from nowhere. I don't want to over-psychologize Jesus, but I think we could probably say safely that whatever's going on here, it started some time ago with disappointment. Like he was disappointed in, for some reason. Maybe Jesus wasn't the Messiah he thought he was supposed to be. Maybe he didn't really like him. Maybe he didn't think his jokes were funny. I don't know. Like he was disappointed with Jesus. And then disappointment kind of grew to bitterness. And then bitterness became betrayal. You got to understand this doesn't start nowhere. It starts small and it grows. Let me just put it like this. Here's where this hits me. I've come, to the, I've come to accept the fact that in my walk with Jesus, there's always gonna be a little bit of doubt for me that kind of comes in and out. There's just always gonna be times when the whole thing seems crazy or there's a part of this that just, it's kind of like, what? Like, that's really the truth. That's how the world, that's, that's the universe we live in. Like, that's who you are, God. That just seems odd to me. And this used to bother me. It doesn't bother me anymore. It's probably always gonna be with me. Maybe not. Like, maybe God's gonna show up in some undeniable way and I'll never doubt again. He could do that if he wants to, but he doesn't owe me that. He doesn't have to. I trust him anyway. I'm in no matter what. It's not a matter of a wavering commitment, but it just, sometimes I doubt. And I think what I've come to realize in my life is the scary thing is not doubting. It's pretending that I don't. 
It's not like the weird thoughts I have and wrestlings I might go through. It's keeping those hidden locked away as if they're not there. And I don't know if it's doubt for you or if it's pain or if it's confusion or if it's that Jesus just didn't do in your life what you thought he promised to do in your life. He is not working in the way that you think he should probably be working and so you're disappointed. I'm just saying, like I'm not even trying to analyze or say here's the solution. I'm saying it starts with don't let it fester. Get, get it out there, Deal, talk to somebody, talk to the him. You gotta, you, gotta, you gotta get it out. You gotta talk to it. You gotta you get set on it or it will become something worse than what it is. And the fourth warning that comes from this story is don't get blindsided by greed. The general rule is don't think that you can tolerate small sins without eventually paying the price. But the specific point here and the specific one in play, it matters, it's greed. It's the one thing we know about Judas. If it's the, if you want, it's like, oh, let me read John 12, thir, thir, verse three and following. This is whenever the whole anointing of the feet uh, of Jesus's feet with oil happens. It says, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. So righteous he sounds. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. If you want your answer to the why Judas did it question, this is the closest we get from Scripture. It's weird, it's strange though. Like this, this, it wasn't really a satisfying explanation for me because it's like 30 pieces of silver is not that much money. This is why sometimes you feel like there's got to be another reason. Who, he wouldn't sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Who does that? A greedy person. Greed turns us into fools. It blinds us. It blinds us to reality, much less wisdom. But, but here's the thing that, that, that really scares me. I don't think this explanation scares us nearly as much as it should. <laughs> I'm not greedy. I know greed is bad. Like maybe you remember Gordon Gecko. Greed is good. No, it's not. We say with our like Sunday morning tone of voice. You know, like no, greed is horrible. <coughs> Personal confession, and I'll I'll be blunt. The older I get, the more I want money. Just being honest with y'all. Really, it's 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 a lot of like the older I get. Not like a ton, but like it's like the older I get, the more I value comfort. My value security, I'm just being real. The more I like want the people I'm responsible for, I want to know that the people I'm responsible for are taken care of in the ways that they need to be taken care of. I try to be honest about this. I try not to hide it so that if it becomes a problem, my friends can call me on it and tell me, man, something's up. And I wrestle with this with the Lord. I noticed though, as I was thinking through this, never once have I said the words, you know, the older I get, the greedier I become. I'm not... Greedy? I'm not greedy. I don't want the world. I just want a little bit more. And that's how it happens. Greed is deceptive. It's, it's sneaky. The desire for more will, will creep up on you. Greed, it's like, it's like greed doesn't come at you like a, like a D lineman busting through the line coming straight down the middle. It's more like a cornerback who blitz off the corner and you don't even see him coming. And he's at your blind side and you don't feel anything until you're looking down eating dirt. Or if you prefer, greed is like a weed. It's like on Sunday, you're out doing your mowing for the week and you see this weed, but it, you're tired and hot and you hate pulling weeds. And so you figure, I'll just grab it next week. You can come back, back out next week. And that sucker is as tall as you. You ever had that experience? That's greed. 
or to switch metaphors on you one more time and come back to the bigger picture, I think the Judas story should indeed function like a check engine light. You come into church this morning, it's like turning the ignition and that little symbol shows up on your dash. Alert, warning, there may be a problem underneath. Are you working with Jesus or are you working against him? You're here, you're close, you're around Jesus, but are you intentionally allowing him to teach you how to live? When you get frustrated with how it seems that God is or isn't working in and around you, what do you do? Do you express this to God in prayer and to your community of faith? And do you open up the word to try to discover what is he revealed that can maybe make some sense of what's going on? Or do you just stuff it and slowly become embittered toward him? And how much of a handle do you have on your greed? Or flipped around, how content are you? How content are you? How content are you with your daily bread? You know how it is when that light comes on, at least for most of us. Ah, oh, it's probably just a glitch. I'm sure it's fine. Everything seems to be running smoothly. Okay, could be. But ignoring that light can cost you. Oh, I'm sure you'll never reach Judas level. Probably. Maybe. Look, I don't know much about Judas Iscariot. But I do know this about the thing he's most famous for. It could have been me. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.